welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Novik Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ovori. Mass market adoption of Web3 gaming has had, to put it mildly, a bit of a shaky start. Um, after the impossibly high expectations set by the tremendous early success of Axie Infinity, and then the ensuing kind of mad rush by both crypto-native developers new to gaming, uh, who think they can make a game, and then the many kind of traditional Web2 game developers embracing Web3 for the first time, we have yet to see another breakout success, not yet at least, like Axia. Uh, and of course, as our listeners well know, making great games takes time, uh, and even great games sometimes struggle due to platform limitations or technology limitations. Um, so, you know, we all know making great games is hard. And the question we're asking today, especially as it relates to Web3, who is in a position to succeed and why? Uh, what differentiates a Web3 game? How is a Web3 game better than or at least different to other games? What sets them apart? And to get a glimpse into some of the thinking around uh, what one of the leaders in the space is doing around Web3 gaming, um, we have one of the undisputed heavyweights uh, in the ring today, on the pod today. Uh, we literally have the proverbial 800 pound. 800-pound ape in the room, <laughs> and that is Yuga Labs, of course. Uh, Yuga is the creator of the Board Ape Yacht Club, which debuted in April 2021. If you know anything about NFTs, you know about Board Apes. Uh, since then, they've created new IP for the ape ecosystem with the Mutant Apes and the Board Ape Kennel Club. They've acquired other top NFT projects, uh, collections like CryptoPunks and MeBits, uh, and they made both Web3 and gaming history with the biggest NFT mint ever, followed by a game demo, which had record-breaking synchronized player participation. Uh, and that was, of course, Other Side, uh, their Metaverse projects. More recently, they launched the very irreverent, but very fun, Infinite Runner Dookie Dash, uh, which we actually covered and deconstructed, uh, at least the light deconstruction, on the February 7th episode. Uh, and so if you missed that episode, go and check it out. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, Yuga have also made a bunch of really amazing, respected senior hires from the gaming industry, uh, especially over the last you know months or so, uh, to help build out their Web3 gaming ambitions. And we are lucky to have one of those heavyweights in the room with us, on the pod with us today. So without further ado, our guest on the pod today is the man leading the charge at Yuga Labs to drive adoption of Web3 games. He is none other than Spencer Tucker, the chief gaming officer at Yuga. Spencer, it is great to have you on the pod. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, and and thanks for having me. Uh, I'm big fan of Navic. I, you know, going back to mobile game game days, uh, I used to kind of read the blog, uh, pay close attention. You guys deconstruct stuff. I find it super useful. So happy to be here. Yeah, great to hear, listeners. If you haven't yet subscribed to the Navic Pro, what a great plug from our from our guest today. <laughs> thank you, Spencer. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so with that out of the way, let's get into to the episode here. And I always like to start, um, especially with guests like yourself today. Um, I like to get a little bit of background because I find the journey that many of us kind of traditional Web2 developers have taken into Web3 really fascinating. Um, and I want to hear from you directly. What 
you know, what are you coming from? What is your background uh, in gaming? And then what brings you to Yuga and the, the world of Web3? Yeah, awesome. Um, so I think to really understand my journey, you, you really have to actually go back even before gaming. Uh, you know, I've been sort of a gamer since day zero. My dad's an aeronautics engineer, so he has to have like high-end PCs to kind of run stress analysis for rocket engine sort of like stuff. Um, and uh, as a byproduct of that, I was the fortunate beneficiary of all the uh, old PCs that he passed down. So I actually started gaming on a Commodore 64 then picked up Ataris and sort of 486, 286, et cetera, on up to the modern day stuff. So I'm, I'm a huge like gaming collector, huge game sort of enthusiast. Um, but I worked in banking for about eight years. So I was at Wells Fargo doing bank ops. Um, and somewhere through that process, uh, I kind of had an epiphany moment where I was like, do I really want to be doing this for the rest of my life? Um, and the answer was no. Uh, and so I was like, well, you know, what am I going to do? So I started looking around and at that time it was pretty early, um, you know, like pre 2010 ish, uh, like early free to play days. Um, and I looked at all the gaming jobs. I was on game Sutra, et cetera. Uh, and there wasn't a lot out there for, uh, for folks like me. Um, it was like, Hey, start from the bottom, work your way up. And I just couldn't do that. I had a family, like couldn't afford to do it. Um, and then I stumbled on this, this company that did MMO free to play product, like really early on in like browser games, et cetera. Um, and I talked to them sort of, uh, got a sense of what free to play looked like. And I was like, Oh, you know, oddly enough, um, one, I'm familiar with these types of games from playing them, but two, the ec economic model makes a lot of sense to me because they're basically perfect price discrimination models free market economic systems, aftermarkets, et cetera, in some hilarious way, uh, even more complicated than some of the stuff you see on mobile today, even though it's like, you know, decades old at this point. Um, but I saw that and I was like, you know, I think actually, oddly enough, I'm uniquely qualified to kind of jump into this uh, sort of ecosystem and kind of ride this bleeding edge and sort of help define uh, how the space evolves over time. And so I took the job, big risk, moved uh, the family. Um, but it was a lot of fun and I learned a ton. Um, you know, anyone who's worked in a startup will tell you uh, that a month is worth a year. Um, and it definitely felt that, like that for me. Um, but it was super awesome to kind of be on the bleeding edge and sort of define, you know, stuff for the first time ever. Um, and I did that for some time. And then, you know, as smartphones came up online and people started looking at those as like this opportunity for scale, which was super obvious, I looked at that and I said, well, you know, the games that exist on sort of feature phones and smartphones are like so much less sophisticated than the stuff I'm used to. I mean, I'm doing like these hugely robust sort of like free market economic games as, as MMOs uh, with zero barrier of entry. And I think like there's a lot of analogs I can see here in terms of like how these things are designed, how they operate, the type of game experiences that are evolving um, on the smartphone, a smartphone kind of like form factor. Um, and I saw an opportunity to kind of get in early and, and sort of drive some of the, the kind of smartphone adoption of those free-to-play economic systems to scales that just had never even been thought of before. Um, so I took a job at, uh, at Glue. Uh, at the time, I think, you know, everyone thought it was crazy. They, they actually thought that I was crazy to leave banking and get into free-to-play games. And then likewise to, to leave, you know, MMO PC stuff and jump into uh, mobile phones. 
and, and glue was kind of like almost penny stocks at the time. It was like a dollar ten or or something like that. And they had like really high fidelity product. They pumped them out all the time, but they had no idea what games as a service was. They had no idea how to operate these like free to play economic systems. Um, and so I really kind of like built their product function and sort of like game systems design strategy from from the ground up. Um, and then like one of the first games that we implemented those systems in, and it was a really really simple system. It was actually a, a pretty big learning experience for me, like coming from something really complex to a place that had like no experience building this kind of stuff. You have to like sort of like temper your expectations and sort of like build simple first. Um, and so that's what we did. And we adopted a pretty like basic soft currency sort of razor blade model to a game called Deer Hunter. Um, and that kind of like blew up um, and was like very viral and, and performed, you know, exponentially better than anything else that they'd done historically. And we sort of rode that wave and just continual sort of, you know, step ups and, and sort of evolutions of uh, sort of the free to play economic system within Glue. And then eventually uh, we, we had Kim Kardashian. That was a big hit. We started really indexing into um, celebrity IP. And I was like, well, I don't know if I, I necessarily believe in the thesis that like social following equates to free UA, uh, which was kind of the thesis there. And so I decided to jump to a company that kind of more represented, uh, you know, where I thought the the industry was going to eventually evolve to, which was uh, Gree. Um, so they're doing like Japanese games, Funzio product, et cetera, like more kind of traditional games as a service, um, like high sort of analytical function and, and data insight driven sort of game philosophy. Um, and I, I stayed there for, uh, for a while. Um, and then I was looking at cross-platform as an opportunity there. That didn't pan out. We didn't end up spending the money on the uh, sort of investments required to, to kind of realize that, that vision at the time. Um, and so I jumped over to Scopely, uh, kind of initially as like SVP of product monetization and analytics, very long title. Uh, but the scope of that role was basically running their analytics function, uh, sort of some of the central monetization strategy and product function. Um, and they kind of grew with that company, eventually became president of games, innovated a lot of firsts there too, including the cross-platform stuff. So kind of moving to like browser plus mobile games and sort of creating social ecosystems and off, um, off sort of platform revenue streams, et cetera, uh, and had huge success with that. Started dabbling in Web3 um, because I saw an opportunity there and we'll talk a lot about this, but like the opportunity there was disruptive to the industry I was coming from and free to play at that point had become a, a kind of, you know, the curve of innovation had gone somewhat asymptotic. Uh, so what we were really seeing was um, a lot of hyper optimization and you, you basically made it or didn't on a razor's margin in terms of like what your yield relative to your CAC is. Um, and, uh, and I realized like, you know, to break into to kind of a new genre or to have success uh, as a new company coming into the space was very red ocean. Uh, it was very kind of like RNG in a sense. Um, and so I thought that there, anytime a, a space reaches that kind of crescendo point, it means it's ripe for, for a paradigm shift in disruption. So you start looking at like, what are the vectors of disruption? Like what, what can we do to reinvigorate the space, change the dynamic, um, create sort of a disruptive um, sort of opportunity to, to kind of flip everything on its head. And that's what I enjoy doing. So started looking at Web3. Um, I think there were two camps for Web3. There was the camp of like, hey, 
uh, valuations are crazy. So let's jump in the, in the, you know, in the pond and like play around and like splash water. Um, but not really understanding the value proposition or kind of like the, the real reason for, for wanting to do that. And then there was the camp of people who maybe understood it has some sort of thesis or ethos around, you know, what might work, why it's disruptive, why it's valuable from a player's perspective, but they, they really didn't know how to execute it and the complexities involved in that new technology and kind of navigating both the technical, legal, sort of logistical space of that was just really complex. Um, and then like when the bear market hit, you saw a contraction, right? So like all the people who were playing in the pond, all of a sudden it's less attractive to play in that pond because a lot of, you know, dead bodies are floating to the surface uh, and there's a lot of pressure and constriction. Um, and then at the same time, the people who were kind of like generally understood it, but didn't really know how to make games, um, they find themselves kind of in the same position for a different reason. It's like, well, we might understand the space and have a clear value proposition, but we don't know how to make games. We don't know how to reach this audience. Um, and so it's been like kind of like very red ocean in that sense. But I think it's very blue ocean in terms of its innovation potential. And so once again, you know, following uh, kind of my history, I was like, well, I'm going to take this this leap and then dive into a place that I think is well positioned to be successful um, to kind of crack that that kind of opportunity space of disrupting the the kind of place that I came from. And that was Yuga Labs because it's obviously like the the giant ape in the room, you know, uh, so to speak. Um, and I think like again, it's it's like a bear market, and people are like, "What are you doing? You're crazy! Like, why would you take that that leap?" Uh, from a, a known space that you're really sort of like um, sort of experienced in and sort of jump into this new space. And I think like that, that kind of um, sort of ability to, to take the chance and sort of make the dive and innovate um, is what differentiates uh, sort of leaders in, in new spaces and disruptions and paradigm shifts. And, and that's what I wanted to do. And so that's, that's kind of my journey from soup to nuts uh, there to here. Yeah. Amazing journey, uh, and I really do love hearing these uh, because uh, there are a lot of through lines for folks who've been working in the space for a long time. I mean, so many of the things you just said resonated with me. Commodore 64, that's where I started as well. Um, banking, I was an, an accountant, auditor in my first career, worked for Ernst & Young. Um, really fascinated by game economies. Your jam was MMOs, mine was, and still is, management simulation games. Um, uh the notion that there's these disruptive technology cycles that happen, you know, on a on an X year basis, whether it's a decade or maybe more in some cases. You know, for me, it was getting started at Zynga and then free to play mobile. Uh, our we took a detour via voice gaming, um, and then you know now it's Web three. So I love this story, and it resonates heavily with me, and I'm sure it'll resonate uh, strongly with our with our listeners as well. And I love how thesis driven uh, it seems like you've been throughout your career. So great basis for starting this conversation. Um, I want to dive straight into to Yuga uh, because mm -hmm. that is that is absolutely what this episode is all about. Um, and I'm just going to start with what Yuga's, I, I don't know if it's their vision, um, but Yuga's vision, at least as it's currently stated on the website, uh, is it articulated as follows, and this is a quote, it's nice and short, shaping Web3 through storytelling, experiences, and community. So very simple, three things, storytelling, experiences, community. And what struck me about this was that there's absolutely nothing about gaming. There's nothing about digital currency, digital ownership, uh, which we typically associate with Web3. There's nothing about crypto. There's nothing about blockchain technologies, um, which is fine. I mean, you know, that's the stuff that runs thing, these things. But, but you know, storytelling experiences community, 
tell me why <laughs> and, and why not some of these other things. I, I'm really fascinated by how clean and simple it is and yet doesn't necessarily tap into what made Yuga, you know, air quotes, special in the first place by, by being a very successful blockchain NFT project. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think the first thing I'll say is you can't have a game without creative storytelling uh, and, and kind of community um, by definition, or at least not a, a social kind of mass market game. Um, and so I think like gaming still leans into those three principles, but I think what's, you know, to your point, what's not captured there is the concept of what happens outside of the community, like the, the concept of scale. Right. And I think these are two distinctly separate things. So I think Yuga's, um, sort of core thesis is to support its, its core, its community, its kind of, uh, its anchor point, its, um, you know, it's sort of most valuable participants uh, in, a, in a way. And, and that community, the Web3 sort of NFT community specifically, is built on those three principles. So I think for Yuga, you know, at its core, it's still delivering against people that are part of that community. Now, the question is, you know, ultimately, how do you grow that community? Um, like, what is the path to you know, provide that sort of focus to a much broader audience than currently exists um, in the community. And, and one of these, one of the things I find interesting and, and it's somewhat related to this is back to my, you know, looking back at my history that I described before, when I started out in gaming in MMOs, uh, especially free-to-play MMOs, community was definitely core uh, to those MMOs. In fact, the games that I worked on, you know, I'll say objectively looked like garbage. Uh, they weren't, they, there was no like really thoughtful sort of, you know, um, fidelity execution. I mean, they were like pretty bare bones because you want free, free entry point is like mass market. Therefore, like, you know, hardware matters and you don't want to create too much of a barrier of entry around hardware, et cetera. Um, but there's also like a lot of, you know, quests and things that are fetch quests. They're not in a vacuum in a single player sense, super interesting. What makes the games really compelling and interesting are the interactions and emerging gameplay that results as a byproduct of people interacting with each other in the con in the context of that sandbox that you've created, which is the game experience. So the game's an overlay. It's like kind of the experiential layer. It's the, the codifying sort of glue uh, that connects everybody together under common goals um, and under kind of understood like world principles. Um, but the real game is is you and me. It's you know our friends, our family, uh, how we interact together, how we compete for for kind of notoriety, how we peacock and show off, and like the kind of dynamics that that exist around that. And same thing with Ultima, etc. I mean, great games are just as much what happens outside of the game and kind of the interactions between people as they are the actual core experience and the moment to moment gameplay. And I think like that's a important factor in kind of understanding those three um, sort of key tenets that, that Yuga encap encapsulates is like, it's, it's more about speaking to delivering against the core and providing a really solid experience with like meaning and purpose and kind of fidelity of moment to moment interaction and like ultimately leaning into that community vibe. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a lot unsaid in those three principles. Uh, that we can get into that really speak to like, how do you scale it? How is it durable? How is it sustainable? Um, and how is it related to games? And I think games, you know, to, to kind of be a spoiler alert on like probably what I'll say in the future here is, is like a fantastic entry point 
into that ecosystem. Uh, and again, I think like that ecosystem is very supportive in an MMO way uh, to kind of create stickiness and cohesion and sort of engagement and retention. Um, but the the entry point, I believe, um, you know, is most effective when it comes to to kind of something that's like broadly understood in mass market, and that's that's gaming. Yeah, I absolutely buy the the community argument, uh, and I know obviously I buy that you can't have you know a gaming a, a good game, at least a good game, <laughs> without those three elements. Um, but the community piece, I think, is really strong. We're going to definitely talk about that more because obviously that's one thing that Yuga and uh, has done really really well is leaning into community in a, in a very powerful way. Key question: Does it scale right? And I think we're we're getting mm-hmm. to some some teasers around that. Um, uh, you know, and I love the idea that you've got this kind of almost like a soul. The community is the soul of the game or the meta game. You know, it's the interaction between the players, and then the game itself is kind of like the scaffolding, almost like you know, oh, here are some rules, and here's how we can do these interactions without it just being completely freeform. Um, and so that leads nicely into my next question, which is: I do want to talk about what is this gaming. I'm calling it scaffolding. I know you didn't, but I'm calling it gaming scaffolding. What is this gaming scaffolding around this, this you know, uh, the beating heart, which is the community? What does that actually look like for you guys? Um, we you know we did the deconstructive Dookie Dash um, in February. Um, amazing engagement stats, like absolutely phenomenal, spectacular. Uh, I'm going to just rattle off a few here. Like you minted, I think 26,000 passes, 25K uniques played. Um, you did 7.7 million dashes in three weeks. It was a timed event. Um, so that's an average of 300 per dasher per person. Um, it was only live for 21 days. So on average, those who played, and of course, there's going to be a massive distribution you know, um, at the high end and at the lower end as well, but an average of 14 times per day. You know, and I think each dash is like you know, a minute, two, three you know, max. Um, so, but still, that's a good amount of time being spent. Um, and you managed to engage uh, a lot of non-Yuga, non-Board Ape community. Um, and the winner actually was an 18-year-old pro uh, Fortnite player, I believe, called Mongral, or Kyle Johnson, I believe, is his, is, or Jackson is his actual name. So really just a, an incredible, um, I mean, small, right, by modern gaming standards, but incredibly highly engaged. And that's really, a, I think, that community piece that you're talking to. Um, on the on the on the other end of the spectrum, you've got um, other side, which is this huge, or at least from the outside looking in, is this huge, likely multi-year effort. Looks like it's something you're building to stand the test of time. You know, on on par with any major brand franchise, you know, in gaming that's been around for the last you know decades. Whereas Dookie Dash was a three week like infinite runner, quick thing. So it's really interesting to me. You've taken two extremes almost as your starting points into gaming. Um, you know, one, a metaverse project that's probably very expensive and very time consuming and it's going to take years. And then the other looks like you guys got it cranked out in like a matter of months, which is really impressive uh, to get a game out to market. And it worked and it didn't break. And the exploits seemed like they were mostly plugged and the cheaters were caught. So two very different approaches. And I'm very interested to hear, how are you guys thinking about your slate? What are the games that you're working on? And how do these two very disparate experiences actually fit together? Yeah, yeah. So great question. Uh, and happy to, to kind of articulate um, sort of my perspective there. So I think to understand what the vision and the slate are for Yuga, um, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, and a, a lot more than I think people probably realize at surface level. So for example, uh, when I started, uh, I mean, for context, I've been here about eight months. Um, and we started Dookie Dash 
sort of dev or conceptualization of Dookie Dash, you know, shortly after I started, probably a month after I started, maybe a couple of weeks, something. I'm trying to remember when, when I started working on that. But I, one of the things I noticed, you know, coming in immediately is we've got to your point, like there's a big bet, there's other side, right? And there's a huge vision for other side. There's a lot of complexity there. Um, and there's a huge team dedicated to executing that. And at the same time, I think, you know, my point of view is that I think gaming, gaming is a word, but like the concepts of gaming are so relevant, not just for gamers, but also for people that probably don't even consider themselves gamers. So when I looked at the space, at the Web3 space, um, I said, hey, you know, a lot of the collections are starting to move in a gamification sort of direction, uh, be that RNG with like reveals or kind of like these multi-part processes with sort of inputs and uh, you know outputs and kind of like um uh sort of compute computation processes and sort of components that are ingested to create something derivative and there's a lot of like innovation going on on the blockchain etc so i thought that was pretty interesting um i very quickly realized that like you know outside of our main gaming effort there's not a ton of gaming dna inherent in the company um, so what I wanted to do is like lean into, uh, what you guys really good at, which is the community, the storytelling, uh, sort of the engagement, but also the solidity dev, the blockchain technology, the, um, kind of concept conceptualization of those tenants that I think are really powerful, like transferability, interoperability and interoperability or, um, and ownership, uh, and, and I think like those um, were things that I thought were super disruptive to the gaming ecosystem. We can get into that in a minute. Um, but I wanted to kind of lead with something short, simple, sweet uh, that could be executed well, um, that really took advantage of some of those tenets and core competencies of the business um, and use that as a jumping off point, as an iteration point for like what we do into the future. And so like the slate strategy for Yuga ultimately looks something like Let's build iteratively, which is something that's novel for gaming. And what I mean by that is not like Call of Duty 1, 2, 3. It's not, you know, whatever uh, sort of sequence of like, let's repeat but replace the old thing. It's how do you tie them together conceptually against a vertical and then concentrically against multiple verticals. And that's where interoperability comes into play. So, for example, Dookie Dash, you know, there's these passes and these game passes are minted. These minted game passes are played with. The rarity of the, the kind of output of that is relative to your participation in that event and like how successful you are, which is pretty novel. Um, and then the output of that is going to be, you know, a NFT that's used as a game character in future content and future games and those continue to evolve um, and the games become progressively different, but also more complex, but they're feeding into each other. So this is dovetailing of kind of like experiences. So the game itself is not just the one game. It's like the sequence of games and how people interact with those and the kind of evolution of the thing that you originally started with over that period of time. Now, you think about that in the context of interoperability and, and kind of con concentricity, if that's even a word, but like basically concentric uh, sort of experiences. And imagine that you're not just building, you know, a game for somebody to play uh, with with like kind of the past, but the past becomes a mech and that mech's used in a game. And maybe that game mech is also used in another game in a different context. Um, and so the, this kind of gets to a really interesting idea, right, where now content 
and its value is relative to multiple experiences and collateralized against an ecosystem versus being specific to an individual vertical. And this is like fundamentally disruptive to what gamers are used to. And I'll describe why. Um, so for example, let's say you bought, I don't know, a, a like a character pack in Marvel Strike Force. And so you get Spider-Man. Um, Spider-Man's utility or game value in the context of that experience is isolated to just that experience and for some finite period of time. Because by design, all free-to-play games, um, even if you know people say this isn't true, it's true, uh, have this kind of obsolescence cycle, intended or unintended. By virtue of the fact that you introduce new content, old content becomes effectively devalued over time. Um, some of that's intentional. It's to pr- perpetuate sort of a behavior cycle and a velocity of behavior. And some of that's unintentional just as a byproduct of people wanting more content and there's just more choices and more things. And therefore, you know, individual things matter less. Um, The difference between that paradigm, which I think most gamers don't love over time, and the paradigm of Web3 and what that offers players for the first time is the fact that Spider-Man might be Spider-Man in the context of Strikeforce, but now Spider-Man's not just Spider-Man in the context of Strike Force. Spider-Man is also a different thing in a different context. And so that could be Spider-Man as a different character in a different context for a different style of game. It could be Spider-Man is now an ability for another character in a different context in a different game. It could even be something as extreme as Spider-Man is now a refrigerator in The Sims. You know, like it's it's that crazy. So, and I think like that is a really kind of compelling player um, sort of like utility proposition. It's like, hey, no longer do you have to worry about this thing becoming devalued in the context of the thing, the experience you bought it for because people are always building something new for it. Why? Because they care about you as a player. You're the most valuable part of that ecosystem. And the more of your time and engagement and kind of retention they can achieve, the better off that business is and the better off the ecosystem that you built around that person ultimately is. And that's the concept of interoperability. Now you pair that with ownership and transferability. And all of a sudden you've got this dynamic where, you know, not only can you invest in a thing because you appreciate its immediate value, if the additional contextual value uh, doesn't speak to you as a player, you can turn around and and sell it or trade it or whatever. Um, And so there's, for the very first time ever, in the free-to-play sense, you know, some degree of kind of like uh, gaining back some of what you've put into it. It might not be, you know, yield on top of what you've put in, but it's it's greater than zero. And like historically, games have been a zero-sum game. Like you buy a thing, it's gone. You leave the game, you've lost all the value. Like that's no longer the case. And that's fundamentally different. Um, so I think that's like super compelling to, to kind of think about. Now, how that relates to, to Yuga and the Yuga strategy is, again, you know, we want to build experiences that transcend experiences. And what I mean by that is like, I want to build something for somebody that means more than just the context in which they originally achieved that thing, whether they bought it or earned it or achieved it through some other method or were given it or whatever. I want them to have this persistence of experience across tons of different verticals. Um, and ultimately, the more we do that and the more we feed those into a persistent, durable endpoint, the better off we are. And so what is the persistent, durable endpoint? Well, that in this, in this particular instance is other side. And so other side becomes 
sort of the focal point of the energy for all this content. And these individual game experiences really are meant to achieve kind of like two things. Uh, The first is to build the muscle around live service sort of operational um, understanding for the business of Yuga in this particular instance, um, but also to build kind of a pipeline of content value uh, and an audience that can funnel into that, that kind of penultimate longer term vision that you mentioned is, you know, multi-year and, and everlasting, ideally. Um, and so that's kind of the strategy. And so like, what are we doing? We're building lots of different experiences, different games, different genres, different kind of like play styles that innovate really you know, meaningfully in terms of the technology and the way it's executed. Um, and I'll give you a very specific example of that, but ultimately feed into the other side and create a population and a demand and kind of an ecosystem and a network uh, that also feed into other sides. So um, uh, something I don't think many people at face value really realize, and this is a, a good kind of like case in point, um, is Dookie Dash. You know, one of, the, one of the very first questions I asked myself when I built that game was, you know, I don't know how many Yuga apes are gamers, right? Like, and what if they're not? And I don't know because all their data is on chain. I have no way. It's like, unlike, you know, free to play games, I know exactly who's playing those. I have freaking no idea who's playing these games uh, by and large. Um, And so I can like subjectively kind of like anecdotally poke around in Discord or like look at Twitter or whatever, get some general sense of like who these people are. But in an aggregate, I can't quantify it in a meaningful way to make decisions around it. Um, And so one of the first questions I asked myself is, you know, is there a technology that I can leverage here in the blockchain to de-risk the risk of not knowing if these people are going to be gamers or not because the ecosystem is so small. Uh, and so that technology was warm wallet and delegate cash. Um, and the reason that mongrel won, you know, the top prize and the reason that esports players were playing the game is not because they went in there and spent, you know, thousands of dollars to get like a sewer pass. It's because they were delegated a sewer pass by people who realized that they didn't want to play or that they weren't good enough. And they went out and they created their own networking externalities. They created networks around themselves and basically crowdsourced the effort of acquisition. And that to me is a fundamentally game-changing way to think about scale and uh, kind of acquisition and engagement is imagine when you've got a core of an audience that's super hyper-engaged on top of a community that's like really sticky. And then you can leverage that community to basically go out and build networks around themselves and scale your own ecosystem that way. Like that to me is like a pretty game-changing sort of idea. Um, and that's what I wanted to kind of like test out with uh, with Dookie Dash. And luckily, you know, outperformed what I thought it would do, but like, that's yeah. great. And it was just lean into it, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, what a great answer. Um, clarity of vision. I really I applaud you guys for for having that clarity of vision and, and this multi-year plan. There are so many follow-up questions I have uh, based on what you just told me, but I, there's just a couple of things I'm gonna I'm gonna hit on first. Um, so the very first first point I'm gonna make this this Dookie Dash episode that we did you know in February, um, I actually introed that episode by saying I genuinely believe that what you guys have done with Duke, even though the numbers are small, obviously we're going to, and we're going to get to that in a second. That's my second question here. Um, but the, the notion that you could essentially delegate your assets out and create your own network externalities, as you mentioned, um, I, I didn't think I was, and I hope I'm 
proven right, and I'm sure you very much hope you're proven right uh, in the future, um, is truly a game changer and is probably the most significant moment in Web3 gaming, my, my opinion, um, since Axia, right? Which for a very different reason. Axie kind of is the, the beast that started it all. And then there's been kind of a, you know, a quiet lull until I think this moment. And I think most people don't necessarily realize how potentially significant it can be. So I applaud you guys for having the clarity of vision to go after something like that um, and for it to pay off, it seems like, at least in this first experiment. But the second question, so uh, pat, pat on the back there. <laughs> now, but the second question, it goes in a slightly different direction, which is... Um, you know, I, I love the lore. You guys are great at telling the lore. And obviously the lore of Jimmy the monkey with a with a key stuck in his anus and you guys are running <laughs> literally through shit to, yeah. to get to get to it. Um it's quirky, it's funny, it's very on brand for the board apes, but it's not very mass market, I would mm -hmm. argue. Um and so as effective as I'm sure it was for the existing community and that engagement, how do you balance that? Um what I would argue is kind of a niche toilet humor type con. Again, not in a bad way. Like I found it entertaining. And of course, sure. you, you played very well to your, your community. But how do you balance that against this need to kind of grow beyond that core of the 10,000, 20,000 holders, 30,000 holders across the ecosystem that you guys have built uh, to something much more mass market? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, to answer that, um, it's important to understand that Yuga is not just Board Ape Yacht Club. Uh, it's, you know, Board of Yacht Club, MeBits, Other Side, CryptoPunks, um, 10KTF. I mean, it, there's, there's a ton of content in the portfolio and not all of it is obviously toilet humor um, or, or kind of like really edgy, I guess, is a better way of describing it. Um, and I think like there's, you know, this, this principal kind of idea that like you build for the audience you want to activate. Um, but the concept of how you interact with with that community is pretty consistent so the tone might change but the methodology is pretty consistent um and so i think you know how we end up scaling beyond sort of the niche when it comes to that stuff is to leverage uh kind of the strength in, in how we interact with our community and then leverage the fact that we have all these different verticals that aren't necessarily so narrow um all the time uh, and then we can represent those in different contexts. So, you know, the context of Jimmy the Monkey is very true to the Board Ape Yacht Club. Um, but the beauty of Web3 isn't just that, you know, the Board Ape Yacht Club and Jimmy the Monkey and Dookie Dash exist in canon. It's the fact that there's this almost analog to Lucas's expanded universe for Star Wars that people go out there and build on their own. And this is one of the values of, of kind of Web3 in general and like ownership in general, right? It's like people are out there building kind of concentric sort of L2s to our L1 is the way I describe it. Um, so it's almost like there are universes that are being built uh, on top of our universe. So like, I'll, I'll just give you an example. You know, there's uh, like Mutant Hounds uh, is a, a kind of like L2 to the, you know, Board Ape Yacht Club L1. And they're out there actually with Alex and Dennis, um, who you've spoken to before, like building their own, uh, their own game right now. And, and I think that just illustrates the point, you know, that's not going to be the same tone. It's not going to be the same sort of approach, but it's in the same sort of universe and it's in the same sort of ecosystem. And then if those paths lead back to us and we've created this really sticky and engaging kind of community layer, um, what we've done is we've created like, you know, force multiplier of reach that extends just beyond like different game types as the entry point. But it's also use of IP 
um, and kind of the tones that are created outside of ours. And we determine what's canon, what's not canon. But like the reality is it's, it's community IP in a sense in that like people can build for audiences that we might not necessarily always agree fit the tone of the, the kind of like, you know, canon of the lore of that particular vertical of the business. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, in some ways, community as a service. Um, and, it is, yeah. And, and it's pretty powerful if you can get that going, right? If you can get that, that's a flywheel that I will keep on giving as long as, you know, you feed it the right way, which brings me to one of the other questions I had on, on your previous answer, which is um, you very clearly envision a world where you have your own IP, your own creations, your own games, your own in-house studios. My guess will be that you'll follow, given the, the hires that you've made, <laughs> you'll be following the studio model, would, would be my guess for your own in, in-house stuff, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there or not. Um, but then you you are very much breaking the mold of the gaming industry and leaning into the Web3 piece, which is this community as a service, where you're not just allowing, but encouraging owners, holders, community members um, to create more content, to create games, to create lore, uh, to create events, t-shirts, you know, obviously famously every board ape holder has their own rights to their to the to the likeness and they can go off and do whatever they want with it almost. So I'm curious to hear how how do you balance those two? How much of your efforts are going to be internal and this kind of you know, more traditional tried and true bread and butter studio model um, that we know so well and how much is going to be leaning into the community and encouraging that and how will you be encouraging it beyond the passion of course which is undeniable um, at least as of right now. Yeah, and I and I think the answer to that you know, truthfully is like to be defined, uh, to some extent. Um, I'm, I'm careful at least mentally not to paint myself into a, a corner in terms of like what the best method of operation is because we are blazing trails and, and kind of like doing things for the first time. So I think, you know, be it the studio model or some hybrid model, I think like there are proven ways to operate and build and we are leveraging those for sure. Um, but I think like we're not closed minded in terms of like entertaining alternative methods of scale. And to your point, you know, like other people are building content independent of us. It has nothing to do with us at all. And, you know, to the extent they want to be involved with us directly, we can have those conversations and figure out like what the touch points are and how much, you know, we legitimize or not the, the content that's created for them. But that's kind of the beauty of the ecosystem. Um, and I think, you know, again, also to your point, like I, I don't think of. So like, there's a funny word, you know, metaverse, um, which I think a lot of people interpret a lot of different ways. So you hear metaverse, uh, when it comes to like meta or Facebook, and it's really like a VR sort of like ready player one kind of, I think vision, whether the reality matches that or not. Um, and I think there are a lot of people that kind of have that point of view. And sometimes it's AR and sometimes it's VR. You know, when I think of metaverse, what I think of is like, it has nothing to do with the form factor or uh, the moment to moment sort of experience of the thing. It has much more to do with this concept of fantasy reality. Um, and I think fantasy reality is medium agnostic and meaning that like, there's no, it doesn't have to be on your phone. It doesn't have to be on your goggles doesn't have to be in a 3D expression, doesn't have to be in a 2D expression. It's like everywhere. And I think like that's a pretty powerful concept too. And so if you think about, you know, screen agnostic, platform agnostic experiences that leverage community and social interactions and emergent social behavior, that to me 
is super compelling. And so when we think about, you know, the intersections between how we operate and build product um, and how we scale and kind of reach, uh, what we're really thinking about is where, where do we want to meet our potential community member? Um, and like what, wherever that is needs to be the best place to meet them at that moment. Right. And so it's really about like reaching everyone at their right time on their right platform, you know, within the context that we've built, um, and finding effective ways to engage and kind of convert them into that ecosystem, that social ecosystem. So in a way it's the technology supports it, the thesis or the ethos around the technology supports it. Um, the, the kind of like business model supports it. Games are understood. They're great entry points, but really what we're doing is we're converting people to a metaverse of, you know, potential, uh, sort of brand iteration and participation and people having skin in the game in that process. And like, I don't know what it's going to look like in 10 years. Um, but what I do know is like, we're going to continue to focus on the community um, at the core of it and like build a story with them and make sure that they feel like they've got a lot of skin in the game in that process. Um, and I think that that's super healthy. And that's like, ultimately, again, part of the reason I made the jump from, you know, free to play to here is because I just see that as like fundamentally uh, disruptive to to kind of the way that we generally think about entertainment as a whole. Yeah, I mean it sure is, and it'll it'll be you know I, I appreciate the honest answer. Sometimes I don't know how it's going to play out. It's just the right answer because a little humility doesn't go amiss. Um, you know when especially when doing something so new and something potentially so disruptive. So uh, I appreciate that answer. Um, we'll see how it goes, but meeting the community where they're at is is a good starting point, good philosophy, at least to, to go with, um, leads nicely into, into my next question, which is, I've got a couple of questions on this actually, which is, you know, you just made some very senior hires, um, CEO level, CTO level, yourself, chief gaming officer, you brought, um, Daniel Allegra from Activision Blizzard. He joined earlier, very recently, earlier this year as CEO. Um, you yourself came, uh, I think, last September, give or take, mm -hmm. something like that. Yep. Uh, Scopely, obviously, we heard your story, Chief Gaming Officer. You announced Mike Seavers. Uh, he's an EVP at Epic Games, another giant company in the gaming space. Um, he's joining as CTO at the end of this month, I think. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I've, I, I was keeping a list earlier, but I kind of started losing track a little bit. So a couple of other pretty big hires in there as well. So my question really is, you know, what's going on? What's the plan here? What's the play here? Yeah, I think I think you know. Um, again, like I think people look at the that list of hires and they're like, "Oh, you guys are becoming a gaming company." Uh, I think if you ask Daniel if we're a gaming company, he'll say no. I think if you ask Greg if we're a gaming company, he'll say no. If you ask me if we're a gaming company, I would say no too. And the reason for that is not because we're not making games. We're obviously making games. In fact, we're heavily indexing into making games, but. Um, back to kind of my my prior point, you know, what we're doing is we're building out this collective kind of like metaverse, um, and it's really a community storytelling, creatively driven uh, kind of approach to that. And I think you can't meet people on their terms and their medium and their form factor without being capable technologists and without having an eye for live services. Um, and so what I think you're really seeing is like, us leaning into uh, what arguably is probably the best space for live service and technology, which is gaming. Um, and I think, you know, when it comes to meeting the person and building communities, um, that is kind of what, what gaming's about. 
Um, now they might do it in a in an isolated vertical or in a silo or whatever, um, and they might have not not have all these elements that I've talked about before at play. But um, you know, that's really what the business is. I think any of us that have worked in gaming for a long time can probably you know relate to this and, and, and feel like probably like pretty commonly aligned that yeah, like we are building stories, we're building entertainment, we're building communities, we're kind of interacting with people, we're doing it through technology. Um, and we have to be like really iterative and kind of bleeding edge in terms of the technology that we adopt because that's how we survive in, in a very hyper competitive space. And so these hires ultimately are in service to those goals. And again, I think like it's also crit- critical to have people that have like decades of experience building in a very fluid space uh, when it comes to innovating in a very fluid space that's heavily, heavily technology sort of like dependent, right? So like the blockchain you know, as much of all the philosophical kind of operational and strategic stuff I talked about is like very bleeding edge. Um, the technology is also incredibly bleeding edge and it's changing literally every single day. And so you need people who are used to that kind of modality um, and have a capability to adapt and kind of like take the punches and roll with it. Um, and and that's that's kind of what we're doing is we're, we're hiring folks from you know, that mental sort of state um, to come in with that level of experience to kind of help define uh, the industry going forward. And I think Daniel, you know, actually spent a lot of time at Google um, even before getting into Activision Blizzard. And that, that again, just illustrates, illustrates my point, like Google was not a gaming company, but it was a technology leader. Uh, it was a live service provider. Um, and that's, again, just kind of reinforcing the, the, the kind of thesis there. Yeah, it makes total sense to me. Uh, it does raise yet another risk factor, which is, you know, you're hiring heavily here. You've gone from four to, uh, I think, 100 employees, probably more now, in a fairly short space of time, literally about a year and, and change, maybe. Um, you know, you have hired some pretty senior people and zero knock on any of these companies. They're all great companies that I admire greatly and obviously leaders in the space and continue to innovate, um, but can become bureaucratic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the bigger you get, the more bureaucratic things become. And so my question to you on this risk factor is that are you at risk of losing that irreverent you know crypto bro subculture uh the board apes ethos that like was that's what was the draw for all of these early community members and i i appreciate everything you've said around that's not the only thing you've got you've got a lot of brands you're building your version of the metaverse out i buy all that but but there is this truth to you know, I came from Zal using a personal analogy. I came, you know, I was at Zynga pretty early on, and early Zynga had a certain culture, uh, and which is not to say Zynga is no longer successful. Obviously, it is mm-hmm. <laughs> still a very successful company, but a lot of what made Zynga successful early was that live ops focus, was the hiring of certain kind of personalities that kind of you know fought with each other, but also gelled incredibly strongly and have these lifelong relationships. And so there is this risk of hiring quickly and overhiring and hiring from certain kinds of companies that doesn't really work with what made the company successful originally. And, and this happens all the time with all kinds of companies. Um, so how do you maintain that kind of founder-led vision when it's now being run, the company's being run by folks from very successful companies with lots of pedigree, but nonetheless, not necessarily as steeped in that lore uh, and as, as bought into the original vision as the founders inevitably had to be because they're the founders. Yeah, totally. Um, it's a it's a great question. And I think like the answer is, you know, probably threefold. Uh, the first thing is a lot of the original DNA um, from the company still exists. Uh, so the, the founders are still heavily involved. Um, you know, I have literally 
hour long conversations with, uh, with like Garga, you know, almost daily, uh, about this stuff. He's very, very involved. Um, I think that, and, and he, of course, like represents the brands also, like he, he brings kind of that, uh, historical DNA and kind of focus on what originally made it successful. Um, every time you talk to him, I think like in addition to that, um, you look at the hires that we have made and why they've moved. Um, and this applies to Daniel, this applies to myself and this applies to Mike. Um, we left larger scaling, more bureaucratic places specifically for the reason that if you're going to disrupt, you can't do that at a scaled business because pivoting on a dime is impossible. Um, and oftentimes, you know, people aren't willing to, to iterate and, and kind of like um, sort of embrace the unknown as willingly. Um, and so like, I think if you look at all three of us and you look at our histories, we might've spent stints um, from both early startup days to kind of large scale at these places. Um, but we also have a habit of like, after you hit a certain point, like we go to the, the place that's like, you know, far down the chain. It's not like jumping from, you know, Google to, um, like early days, Google to like, um, you know, uh, early days, Facebook, but it might be like jumping from, you know, um, early days, Google to late or like later day sort of Google, and then moving over to like early day, you know, Activision Blizzard, et cetera. Like you're chasing the innovation. Basically you're chasing the kind of operational flexibility, uh, that gives you the ability to, to kind of innovate. Um, and I think like that's a, a mentality um, that, that we seek out in terms of who we're looking at hiring. Um, and I think also we look for people that lean, lean in, right? So like my um, personal exposure to, to crypto and to, to kind of NFTs happened way before uh, I decided to jump to Yuga. Um, and again, it didn't come from the same place as, you know, maybe some of the early people who were in uh, for like total decentralization, et cetera, reasons. It was more about like, how do I disrupt the place I'm coming from? And like, what is the value I see as a player of games um, through this technology? And then that realization that, you know, to achieve that disruptive sort of opportunity requires you to be at a place that's a little more core to, to kind of the, the fluidity and the, the kind of innovation lane uh, than the place where you're at and with like less hoops to jump through and less bureaucratic process. So I think those are two factors. And I think the third thing, um, you know, ultimately is that we embody the DNA um, in the daily culture. Uh, and so it's, it's hard to lose something that you're like living in real time. Um, and it, you see it pop up in Slack, you see it like all over, you know, pretty much every form that we interact on discord, Twitter, et cetera. Um, it's, it really is like it is the same ethos of, Hey, let's go reach all these new, new people and fold them in and make them part of the community, you know, to do that effectively, you have to embody the community and the community is culture and that culture is represented in the company as well as it is outside of the company. And so it permeates pretty much everything. And so you, you, it's harder to lose sight of, um, you know, that, that kind of like more edgy vibe, if you're kind of like dancing on it all the time, than it is if it's like in the background and you're trying to deliver the edgy vibe as a product to somebody, right? So it's more lived in and appreciated than it is productized and delivered. And I think like that's a key distinction. 
Yeah, that, and follow-on question, that all makes sense. Uh, you are also a fully remote company, as, as far as I understand it. We are. We are, too, we are too, and I know many companies have gone down that path. Um, how has that worked? Um, this is completely aside, like yeah, Yuga, sure. but it's more just uh, out of my own personal curiosity, and I know our listeners uh, have these questions all the time as well, which is, how do you scale a creative culture remotely when you're growing this quickly? Yeah, and, and I think you know the answer to that is like pretty... Simply put, um, if you're as old as I am, you probably remember early days of the internet. Uh, and the early days of the internet were not a, it wasn't like, hey, let's go hang out at, you know, whatever, the, the comic store and play magic. I mean, that happened, of course, still, and like D&D and whatever. Um, it was like, hey, like, you know, let's IIRC, like BBS or like, you know, AOL chat sort of channels, et cetera. It's like that remote sort of culture is actually kind of the web three culture. So I, oddly enough, it's, it, it is very well suited for kind of remote work in that sense. Um, as far as how you deliver creative effectively, um, and kind of consistently and make sure that the, the vibes, the right vibe. Um, I think what it really boils down to is like strong interactions and a kind of operating model for remote work that allow for a lot of the kind of interpersonal connections in real time um, that you might lose if you're not working in the same place. And I think it's just everyone kind of committing to, uh, you know, carve out chunks of their day like you would in a normal office and kind of be present um, and sort of interacting in real time in those forums um, and kind of like surface things being very, really proactive and self-driven, I think is a big part of it uh, that makes it effective. Um, and then on top of that, of course, you still want to create those interpersonal connections. So there's still the IRL stuff. So it's, you know, it's not like we're only ever, you know, remote. We do meetups. We do meetups with the community. Consensus was like another one. You know, there was a whole bunch of us out there. I think it was like probably 15, 20% of the company out there. Um, meeting with like holders and apes and like other people in the industry um, and each other at the same time. And I think like that's a pretty powerful uh, thing to, to kind of help to manage that process. And then the other th the, the last point I'll make on that is I think it's easy to or easier to uh, commit to one model than it is to commit to two, meaning that like if you're full remote, um, it tends to work better than if you're partial remote, partial, you know, yeah, there. So like, I, yeah, <laughs> that's the other part. Preaching to the choir there. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to go, you got to lean into one or the other. You can't try and be on the fence and do both. Uh, certainly can't do both well. Um, okay. Well, that, that's a, that's a great answer. Yeah. Um, I, I have a kind of, it's, it's almost the same question, but it's, it's not about you, the, the Yuga company, your the employees, it's about the community because a, a very similar type of question or, or, you know, concern really uh, applies there. You're looking to scale, you're looking to scale the company, you're hiring employees, you're fully remote, you're trying to make sure that you retain that, you know, early ethos and that kind of the, the energy, the vibe that brought you all there and got you all excited in the first place. How do you scale that community without breaking those ties that brought people together in the first place? Yeah. And I, I think it's an interesting question. So I'd say the first thing you want to do is not lose sight of the self-selected community. Um, because they ultimately create the culture around them. So like early days, um, when you're creating a, uh, a kind of feel, a vibe for something, the vibe and the feel are not just the product of the creators. It's a product of the interaction between the creators 
and the people that have vibed with that creation and they're iterative and evolving. And so I think like that's one thing we we really do focus on is like not losing sight of kind of really serving the core. At the same time, you know, how's that scale and how do you keep the durability of, of kind of that ecosystem? I think the answer to that is um, to your point there, you know, there is probably a maximum number of meaningful connections a person can have. Um, but each person has their own maximum number of meaningful connections. Um, and I think like, unlike, you know, games, uh, the acquisition model here is like a little more, in my opinion, durable in the sense of retaining the, the ethos and culture and vibe of a community. And the reason for that is because you're almost growing, uh, you know, from a core that's, that's already part of the community versus like trying to like source from outside of the community and bring it in. So you're not dilutive to the, the kind of culture of that community because you're consistently speaking to them. And I think that's what's interesting about this idea of, of kind of like networking externalities and kind of crowdsourced growth and engagement is it's a very different proposition for me to go out there and acquire a bunch of traffic off Facebook and pump it into a game at the front of the funnel than it is for me to create an intersection between uh, you know, that, that reach mechanism and a person on the other end, and that person becomes the conversion point for the ecosystem. And what they do is they embody the ethos and the culture, and they impart that ethos and culture on the other person. So what you create is a, uh, a mechanism that incentivizes the person to do that. Um, and that's, that's kind of what I think of when I think of scale, it's scale from within instead of scale from the outside, because the scale from the outside is dilutive scale within from within is, is kind of less dilutive. It's more concentrated. Um, and so that's kind of the, the idea, the model. And if you take that to the kind of like next sort of logical step, it's, you can incentivize like very specific sort of interactions. So like one of the, the, the kind of analogies I like to use or examples, I guess is better word. Um, from my prior life is when I was doing MMOs um, and we would do acquisition on these MMOs through like largely like very un um, sort of uh, performance based ways, like just straight up, like, you know, like buy out a website banner or whatever, kick them in, who knows who they are, right? The most effective and most engaging sort of entry point um, for retaining a person ended up being literally the entry point for the game having community members sit there with care packages and walk people through the onboarding experience. Not a fatui, not a like, hey, here's an incentive to download the game, get this free thing and we'll pay for the traffic. So literally having a group of people sitting there having fun. And then as soon as somebody populates in the, in the scene, they're like, oh, those people look like they're having fun. And then somebody proactively walks over and says, hey, want to come do this thing? They're like, oh yeah, that, that looks awesome. Tell me about it. They give them some items. What I do with the item, answer the questions. Like that was the most effective sort of uh, mechanism. Now, if you can find a way to scale that, right? Because like having just 12 people sit at the spawn zone of an MMO doesn't exactly scale. <laughs> like, but if you can find a mechanism to scale that, which is definitely something that I'm looking at doing uh, and that we're thinking about very deeply, and then you have that representative entry point be reflective of your community, the ethos, the culture, the kind of like baked in vibe. Um, that I think doesn't just preserve the vibe. It creates a way stickier entry point 
and then kind of like perpetuates that vibe collectively outward. So I think like that is yet again, a kind of like another differentiating factor with like web three gaming and web three sort of like ecosystems versus like web two is it's not a, you know, it's not a race for yield and, and kind of ROI against UA to survive. It is a race for retention and preservation of community and kind of the look, the feel, the vibe of, of kind of the, the experience. And that is fundamentally, in my opinion, way stickier than the kind of like current state of free-to-play gaming, which is hyper-optimization, sort of like spend as much money as you can, pump as many people in as you can, um, and lose sight of kind of the experience as a whole. So that hopefully that answers your question, but that's, that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, no, it answers it perfectly. Um, my final question, we're coming up to time here. So my final question is, um, you're obviously doing something very ambitious, um, not just with other side, but the, the entire vision that we've heard today is incredibly compelling um, and, you know, big, <laughs> for lack of a better word, big to yeah. build. Um, you've obviously raised uh, a, a lot of capital, outside capital that brings in expectations in terms of what you need to achieve and accomplish for venture size returns. Um, obviously it gives you a lot of resources <laughs> with which to do those things uh, that you need to do. So, um, on the, on the flip side, you know, web three, and maybe it's a little less so, but certainly even as recently as six, 12 months ago, it's, you know, it was when moon, right. And mm-hmm. when Lambo and there's, there's this mismatch between how long something ambitious takes and building of, of actual enduring value, something that will last, you know, stand the test of time and last long versus, hey, when Lambo, when Moon, which is very still very prevalent, less so I think now than it was, you know, um, than during the bull, but but still there. And so my question to you is really, what's next for Yuga? How do you balance these expectations of delivering something great, but doing it tomorrow? <laughs> um, and then building this, this you know, something, this brand that will hopefully stand the test of time for, you know, not just years, but decades to come, which of course, all the best entertainment products, you must have that ambition. I mean, all the best entertainment products truly stand the test of time for decades, even centuries in some cases. Um, and so that's possible for you guys, for sure. I mean, you're probably the front runner to, to achieve that. Um, but that's, you know, it's got to weigh pretty heavily on your shoulders with the expectations uh, that are there as well. Um, and, and the twitchiness of at least some members of your community. How do you tackle that? Yeah, yeah. And I think it, so it's a good question. I think, you know, if you unpack it, there's a couple of things there. So the first is like, what ultimately is motivating uh, the participants in the, in the ecosystem, the part of your community? Like, what are they looking for? And I think like you can deliver iteratively um, in a reasonable and sort of within expected timetable uh, against some of those those aspirations and those those kind of expectations, and so that's part of uh, why we you know we we've got this concept we use called like building in public. Um, we we use it for the other side. It's actually an interesting kind of case point. Um, in you know free to play games, you would never build in public in that way because again, it's you know it's a it, it has become a red ocean of hyper optimization where you live and die based on literally percentages higher than your competitors um, in terms of their ability to produce yield uh, effective to the, the kind of uh, UA that they spend. Here it's different. We're not spending UA. Um, and what we want to do is we want to keep momentum you know, building over time 
such that we don't, we do, we, it's an interesting mix. It's like, you don't want ex- expectations to be too high. Um, and you don't want too long of cycles with nothing. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to, you know, go like silent and like not deliver anything, um, or, or deliver too little, uh, on too frequent a basis. And so it's a, it's a, a real challenge to construct this method of interaction. Um, but if you can do that well, uh, which is one of the Yuga sort of strengths is, is kind of threading that needle of like, how do we keep the story relevant, moving, evolving, keep the community engaged, allow them to have skin in the game, you know, create in public, allow them to see what we're doing um, and kind of have input into like how it evolves. Um, I think like that, as long as we can deliver on that, it's, uh, uh, you know, it allows us to achieve that longer term sort of durable uh, sort of goal. Um, and that longer term durable goal is also, you know, contingent on our ability to do that short term, uh, sort of sticky and engaging kind of compelling loop of like delivering on the expectations of these, these community members and meeting the vibe and like keeping things fresh and sort of evolving. And so we, we definitely think about it collectively, um, both what are we doing this week? What are we doing today? What are we doing next week? What are we doing next month? And all these things feed into some longer term sort of more durable experience um, that ideally at the end point is as much a function of the community's engagement and kind of UGC in that sense as it is us creating. And so we invest heavily up front and kind of focus on that incremental buildup um, and kind of like allow people to see what we're doing. Uh, and then the, the goal is the end state, like we're doing it together and therefore it's like less direct work from us because it's collectively work from everybody. Um, and that's, that's kind of the way we, we continue to thread the needle there. Awesome. Well, great answer. Um, and great conversation throughout, uh, this is going to wrap it up for us. Uh, Spencer, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Uh, I've genuinely truly enjoyed hearing about the vision. It's crisp, it's clear, it's ambitious. Um, I hope you guys pull it off. I'm rooting for you really am. Um, moving the web three space forward is, you know, something that I'm passionate about as well. And, and you guys are very well positioned to do so. So thank you again, Spencer, for being on the pod. Yeah. And thank you for having me. It's been great. Absolutely. And a big thank you, of course, to all of our listeners. We'll be back next week with more interviews, more insights, and more analysis from the weird and wonderful world of Web3 and gaming more broadly. Until next time, friends, stay crypto curious and feel free to send questions, guest recommendations, and comments to me. My email is nico at novic.co. And you can always find me on Twitter at nicothefin. DMs are open. Until next time. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.